Hello, my friends, Rob Orman here, and you are listening to The Stimulus Podcast, where we break down ideas, strategies, and habits to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. I spent 20 years as an emergency physician and now as a physician coach help docs work through burnout, overwhelm, leadership challenges, or just feeling stuck. If you are looking to recalibrate your career, learn more at our website, roborman.com, where you can set up a free coaching discovery session with me to get clarity on your challenges and goals and see if one-on-one coaching is something you'd like to pursue. This show, The Stimulus Podcast, is supported in part by you, our listeners, via donations through Patreon. If you value what you hear on the show, you feel like you're getting some benefit from it, learning some things, and you want to become a supporter, well, there is a link to our Patreon page in the show notes. And thank you. Just want to do a couple shout outs to a few of our recent Patreons. Mitesh Davda, I think Davda is how, how you would say it, and Mike Lampy. Now, Mike Lampy specifically requested that we bring back the disease naming bonus for new Patreon. So, Mike Lampy, you asked for it, Mike Lampy, forever known as the discoverer of Lampitis. Now, we thought Lampitis did not exist, but it actually does exist. Lampitis is three days of bronchitis that really does get better with a Z-Pack. Bada boom bop. Today's show, very specific for those who do any work in the emergency department. You don't have to work there full time, but at least some of the time, or those who just want to learn more about what goes on there. Now, many of you are working more hours than you want to be, and your work is busier than it used to be, and that is a recipe for a sandwich that you might not want to eat. So what do you do about it? Well, in the long term, or on a group or department or systems level, finding ways to work less, recharge more, hire more staff so you're not pinned to the wall every time you walk into work. Yeah, those are long-term solutions. The reality, though, is the right now. You got to deal with the right here, right now, acute point of care. This is my reality. Overwhelm. And when I speak with physicians about burnout, you know, why they're feeling burnt is different. Everybody comes to the table with a different thing or a different reason that stresses them. But something that's fairly common, it's not universal, but pretty common is being overwhelmed during the normal machinations of an emergency department shift. Of course, not everybody feels this way. Some thrive on and are fed by just busyness on the edge, out of control, raining cats and dogs. But most do at some point get a sense of task saturation. And then more tasks are coming at you when you're saturated. And then you start spinning your wheels, you become inefficient. And it, it's just, it's unpleasant. It's not, it's not good for anybody. So if you feel overwhelmed during your shift, which is really part and parcel to working in the emergency department, if you want to do something about it, the first step is to identify when it's happening. Or when does it show up? For some, it's when there's a bunch of ambulances arriving all at once. For others, it's when the waiting room is really full. Or when you've got a lot of critical patients, you know, you've got CPR in progress, a gunshot wound, and two intubations, and there's only one of me, where do I go first? And those those are pretty obvious. But there's other things, like, you know, most people on most days, a few hours into the shift, 
everything comes back at once, right? All the labs, the diagnostic studies, the need for calling consultants. It's kind of famine, 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 and then feast. And you have to eat it all. You got to feast all at once, or at least it feels like you do. Yeah, it's like kind of this mid-shift task saturation that's kind of predictable. And actually, I think it's an under-recognized inflection point in your day. So all of these things, they're common, right? They happen. And what we have on today's podcast are several strategies to manage the flow, manage the reality of working in the emergency department, keep you from becoming overwhelmed, and a few things to do when you experience it. And I recorded this interview when I was still in clinical practice, and I recorded it for selfish reasons because I wanted to know how I could make my own workflow better. And our guest is Dr. Landon Mueller. Landon is an emergency physician, fellowship-trained sports medicine specialist who I saw give a talk a couple of years ago. It was something to the effect of the clinician's approach to ED flow. But in my mind, I titled it, Slaying the ED Shift Like a Boss. And the first voice that you're going to hear in this interview is Landon's breaking down one of the core tenets of mastering ED flow. And that is that Dispo is king. I think Dispo is king is essentially just my version or my phraseology of the uh, energy packets. When you Dispo a patient, you are closing that loop. You are closing that energy packet. And from a departmental standpoint, Disposition, if you think about it, is really the most important thing we do as emergency medicine physicians. I like to think that there are three phases to every patient's stay in the emergency department. The first phase is assessment by you, the provider. The second phase is interventions slash workup. And then the third phase is disposition. The interesting thing, though, is of those three phases, the first two are the most resource intensive. Whenever you're assessing a patient or working them up, they're taking up the physical space of being in a bed. They're taking up your mental space of focusing on them or charting on them or putting in orders. And they're taking up resources from your department, radiology, nursing staff, medics, things like that. The least resource intensive step is the disposition, where you're either putting in a few clicks to get that patient out of the department or you're getting a consultant to come down and take that patient off your hands. So from a departmental standpoint, when you disposition a patient and get them out, you are clearing up those resources. You're clearing up the physical space and the mental space. I want to tell you something that I do not hold as a badge of honor, but it is something that I have done on more than one occasion over the past few decades. And it's when I've gotten a boatload of patients. And I've got a lot of tasks to do. You know, the stretchers are lined up in the hallway. And I, I've worked in many EDs that have a pod system and they all come into my pod and the rooms just go bloop, 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 and they're full. And then I've got a lot of other tasks to do. You know, I've got five phone calls to do and all the kind of, you know, it's just all lads up. You're task saturated, the definition of task saturated. I have actively not discharged a patient before other tasks. So that room is occupied. And then I can take care of this other stuff that just fell on my lap and not have a whole new open loop with a newly bedded patient. Of course, you know, if I see that there's somebody septic in the waiting room, it's like, okay, just uh, bring them back anywhere. But, mm -hmm. you know, you have to have situational awareness of what's going into the ED. But I think 
man, I, I need to protect myself a little bit and control the pace at which things are coming at me. Even though I say disposition is king, we have all done that. I know that I've personally done the same thing. Oh where... man, you just <laughs> made me feel so much better. Cause I, I have, I honestly, I have felt like a bit, a bit weak in, do, in doing that. I would counter, you're not weak for doing that because I think the ultimate goal is, you know, disposition is king, but it's disposition is king for all of your patients. And what you have to take into account is, you know, what is the best thing for the whole department? And while, yes, I advocate that you should dispo a patient when ready, if you can knock out three other tasks that need to be done or that need to be done first because they're you know slightly more urgent on a critical patient, or if they're rate-limiting tasks, you have to take some cost-benefit analysis and determine what is better for the department as a whole if you can progress those three patients uh, while that one patient waits just a few extra minutes to be discharged. I, I think about those situations. I, I can remember there, one ED where I worked, it, it just how the flow, the flow worked because you would see sometimes a little bit lower acuity patient, but they still had big workups is you would have eight dispos at a time. You know, it was, you had mm -hmm. 10 rooms and then it was just these transfers of eight patients. And I, and I can remember spinning my wheels. You know, you get into that, you have so many tasks that nothing gets done. You know, one of those things in keeping the flow of the ED moving is protecting yourself from that phenomenon, keeping organized, making sure that you are focusing on the tasks that you can accomplish. And if you think I've got too much stuff going on and then I'm going to have this intake, I become inefficient and I am the ultimate rate limiting step, which we'll get into rate limiting steps. Mm -hmm. I am the ultimate rate limiting step of everything because if I don't sign that order, it ain't happening. So I don't think that this conversation or this part of the conversation is, yes, you are always justified in, I guess you could say blocking a room, but sometimes that disposition at that moment might not be the right thing for the totality of what's happening in the department. One of the best examples I can think of is, let's say you have a patient who's ready to be discharged, but you also have a patient who you're waiting to get a CT scan with IV contrast. And everyone in the department, all the medics, all the nurses have tried to get an IV, but they can't. And so it ultimately falls on your shoulders to do an ultrasound guided IV. I would argue it's better for the department as a whole to take the five to 10 minutes to go put that IV in so that while you then go back to your computer and put in that final discharge order for the other patient, the patient who you put an IV in is now being whisked away to radiology. So things are happening in the background while you perform other tasks. If dispo is king or discharge is king, let's say dispo is king, there has to be a hierarchy of tasks. And, and granted, the hierarchy is going to shift and change depending on the circumstances. But in general, it has to be a hierarchy with some being at the bottom of the pyramid or the maybe the bottom of the food chain, those unlucky few. And then dispo at the apex. So how would you describe that food chain or pyramid? Because there's never a day that you're not presented with multiple things at once. How do I prioritize? When I give this lecture, I've created the emergency medicine hierarchy of tasks. Think of it as kind of a food pyramid. So at the bottom is what is most important. And at the bottom, I put stabilizing and managing critical patients, because uh, I think that's obviously our number one uh, task that we have to do in emergency medicine. And that comes, that takes priority over any other task. Above that, though, I do put disposition ready patients. 
Um, and that's for all the reasons that we just talked about. Above that in the hierarchy, I put assess new patients. Uh, and that's for a couple of reasons, to make sure that they're stable and, and don't fall under that critical patient category. But also when you assess a new patient, it does get their workup started. And we know for most adult patients, we're going to be getting labs, we're going to be getting imaging, and that takes a while. So after you assess a new patient, you can get that workup going. Right above that, though, I put rate limiting steps. But as we've just discussed, sometimes your rate limiting steps can fall further down in the pyramid, i.e., they come before disposition or they come before assessing a new patient because oftentimes once you get through that rate limiting step, the patient can further progress through their disposition, whether that's getting imaging or now you can call a consultant, things like that. Um, and then everything else comes after that. One point I would like to make, though, is with disposition, ideally you want to add in finishing charting on that patient at the same time that you are dispoing that patient. And that goes back to that idea of closing the loop, closing the energy packet. If you can get all of your charting done on a patient and that patient is being walking outside the door, that patient you do not have to think about anymore. Um, and I think that really frees up a lot of mental space to focus on new patients. Landon's mentioned energy packets a few times, and that's something that when you have an open loop, something is taking energy from you. It's taking your attention. And when you close the loop, you can put that energy elsewhere. But the emergency medicine hierarchy of tasks, most important, stabilizing and managing critical patients. I think pretty hard to argue that. That's kind of the job job. Then dispo. Dispo is king, sort of, sort of. We'll talk about that some more. Then assess new patients, then rate limiting steps like SOALAC, like lumbar puncture. And in all of this, you know, there's, there's like all these little nuanced giblets like checking results. I mean, where does that fall in? Is checking a result a rate limiting step? Is it a critical action? Is it done at the time when you, you, know, you see everything's back and now you're ready to dispo and you can synthesize? Maybe it's all of those. Maybe it depends. All of this is with the caveat of, of course, every situation is, is different. I admit, I definitely check it piecemeal. I will check, you know, labs as they come back. But that situation is typically I'm sitting at a, at a computer going through a bunch of computer tasks. And so I may have just put in the discharge order for another patient. And then I see on the tracking board, oh, some of the labs have come back for a patient I just saw. And I'm interested in seeing those. I definitely don't purposefully delay looking at labs or images until everything comes back. But what I try to do is if I'm certainly if I'm going to be discharging a patient, I'll wait until everything comes back. And I think that's pretty standard practice. But it also makes sense that if you're running around truly a busy shift where you have tasks that are just piling up on each other, that if it's not going to make your disposition, if you have to wait for more labs, more images to come back on that patient, don't look at the CBC. You know, if their white count isn't what you're waiting for, why spend the extra five seconds and the two extra clicks on that? Instead, try to prioritize what task you can do to further dispositions. So this is seventh year Hogwarts question. One of the things that I found more challenging than others was knowing how to block out the time for the rate limiting steps 
when my body and skill needed to be there. You know, you have rate limiting steps like, okay, I've got a pregnant patient with vaginal bleeding, rate limiting steps, ultrasound, total rate limiting step. If there's a consultation to OBGYN, rate limiting step. But a rate limiting step where I have to be there and it takes me away from everything else, there's always things coming in, always things coming in, always things to do. What is your strategy for blocking out the time to free you up for that rate limiting step? We've kind of alluded to it, but I think batching your task together. If you can get some time up where you know that you're going to be away from the computer, for example, you you tell your nursing staff, hey, can we get this patient in the pelvic room and get her set up? I'm going to see this new patient and we'll reconvene in 10 minutes and knock this out. For a lot of those rate limiting steps that require other parties, communication is a big deal. If you can try to all get on the same page and kind of almost schedule things out. It's a very simple idea, but it, just, it applies to life as well. It's just, I'm going to put it on the schedule for this time rather than, okay, I got all this stuff going. Oh, I got to get to this thing. It's just, you know, it's taking my attention. When am I going to get to this? Like, when, hey, I'm going to schedule this at X time. And I know new mm-hmm. patients will come in if they're critical, I'll see them. Right. But accepting the reality that other work is going to pile up. I'm going to set an appointment with this laceration. Yeah, just identifying the rate limiting step and figuring out how it works in your department and communicating that rate limiting step to the parties that are involved. I'd say another one of the real master skills of an emergency clinician is being adept at parallel processing. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the reasons I felt challenged as I was describing before with the heavy workload is that I think I excelled and I excel at linear processing. For example, in the recess bay, I think of that as the sanctuary of emergency medicine, Mm -hmm. managing a critical patient. It's the best. I mean, it's not the best for them, obviously. That's a horrific thing. But for us, the best. I, I can't think of anything more I would rather do in the emergency department with a great team, it's the flow state. You've got maximum skill, maximum challenge, high complexity. But it was also a place where for a little while, I had only one patient, one care pathway, you could say. Mm-hmm. Now, even in a multi-trauma patient where things happen in parallel within that one patient, but it's, it's contained enough that it, it still feels linear. But when I would leave the recess bay and get back into the world of parallel processing, the transition to that felt like I was drinking from a fire hose. So I want you to take young Rabio under your arm and you see this trait or imbalance and trying to pull the gut feeling of wanting to linear process into the ED <laughs> flow as much as possible into something which doesn't, is, is not really amenable to that. Give my younger self some advice on how to become not only an effective parallel processor, but someone who thrives in that situation. First, I would reassure young Rabio that it's okay if you know you love that linear processing because it's what we have to do. You're totally right. In a resuscitation, and really truly with every patient like assessment, it is a linear process. Where the parallel processing comes in is when you step back and take the thousand foot view of what we're actually doing. All of our patients are at different phases of the workup. Some are at assessment, some are in the a large portion are in the workup and intervention, and then others are in the disposition. And so we have to be able to seamlessly transition between those different phases. I would say, though, that for young Robbie O, he's already gotten as good <laughs> at parallel processing as he's going to get. The literature shows that 
we best improve at seeing many patients throughout our intern year. A lot of our efficiency, our best gains are in that first year of training where you just get more comfortable with that workflow. With the parallel processing, you get better at it by one, doing it, and by two, by doing you know doing some of these ancillary skills that we've talked about. Um, having a framework of your task determination, having that hierarchy of what do I need to do, identifying and communicating rate limiting steps. In your talk, you bring up the idea of swarming, which is parallel processing for the individual patient. And it makes me think of how wonderful it is when both the nurse and I were in the room at the same time and the paramedics would come in with that patient, somebody, say somebody with melanoma. Within five minutes, we both had the history, all labs were drawn, all labs were sent, physical was done, meds were ordered, depending on who GI was. I mean, sometimes that consult was already happening as I was leaving mm-hmm. the room, but that doesn't always happen. And, and am I getting that the concept of swarming, sort of like the, like the big batch all at once and everybody's, everybody's there, it's kind of, all right, hurry up and wait. And then how do we make that type of workflow happen on a more regular basis rather than kind of the random chance? I mean, you can prioritize like every ambulance that comes in, I'm going to meet them there because yeah. the swarm happens. Is that it or are there other tactics? But yeah, swarming is exactly what you mentioned. It's, it's getting all the parties at the bedside. What I try to do is exactly what you mentioned. Uh, if I'm not doing a critical task and I'm able to get away from my computer, I try to meet every EMS squad that's dropping off a patient and I try to get that history. In terms of getting your nurse, nursing staff and your medics there with you, that's a little bit harder to do. Uh, you, I imagine you could try to communicate to them like, hey, can we all get together and listen to this patient? But uh, that might have to come more from a departmental standpoint of you could actually bring this to your department of trying an initiative of, hey, let's try to swarm as many patients as we can. In terms of like what it actually looks like, a lot of us have seen this happen already with trauma patients. I think that's the most ubiquitous form of patient that we see where all parties are involved, the trauma team, the the emergency medicine team, nurses, medics, they're all at the bedside. So we've all, we all know how to do this. It's just a matter of making it a priority. I'm going to restructure your your hierarchy so you've got critical patient is the most important Mm -hmm. then comes swarming if swarming is an option Mm -hmm. you swarm because that makes so many other things unnecessary then dispo then then assess patients who are not swarm then rate limiting step. The swarm takes priority because it's an efficiency multiplier. Yeah, I totally agree. Tell me if this has ever happened to you. And and I know it has. All right. Rhetorical question. (laughs) Has this, has this happened to you? All right. You're going through lab results of a critical patient. You're putting them in the chart, going through the medical decision-making. You've got very complex brain workflow and then you get interrupted. Maybe it's a phone call. Maybe the nurse taking care of room three says, He's now vomiting blood and it's a lot. An EKG gets put in your lap, whatever. We get interrupted a lot and mm-hmm. disrupts our workflow. And then we switch away from a critical task and we come back to it. And then when we come back to it, it might not have as desirable or polished a result as it would have if we had stayed on task. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm describing water to people who are drowning, right? It's not, not like it's a mm-hmm. mystery, but how often does it actually happen And how have you approached the reality of just knowing that that happens to mitigate the interruption, the task switch effect? 
the literature is interesting. Uh, there's been several studies where they essentially have study scribes follow physicians around and record the amount of time they spent doing tasks and they record, you know, the amount of times that they get interrupted. And the literature shows between seven and 19 times per hour, we get interrupted, or about on average every six minutes. And you mentioned, you know, going back to the original task, but actually the literature shows we don't go back to that primary task 62% of the time. We get distracted on the secondary task And then we get distracted and do a third task instead of actually going back to the first one. It's obviously a part of the job and it's not going to change. What I would say is try to make it a point to defer your interruptions more than you do. I think what happens a lot of times is we get interrupted, a nurse yells at us or throws an EKG in front of us and we immediately stop what we're doing to address that new task. One study found that we only delay or defer interruptions 3% of the time. But clearly, we are not interrupted with an important task every single time. One of the best examples I can think of is if I'm sitting at a computer uh, charting or putting in like a medication order and the nurse either walks up behind you or stands in front of the desk and is kind of looming there, maybe they're being polite and not saying anything. I used to, you know, stop what I'm doing and, and address them, but now I'll finish whatever I'm doing uh, and then address them. I'll finish that last sentence that I'm dictating or I'll make sure I sign that medication order because once I get that task done, I can then focus on that secondary task. I can give give the nurse my full attention plus that primary task is finished and there's no chance that I will perform it incorrectly or make a mistake. Probably about five years ago, took that same approach where it used to be like any interruption that came is like, oh yeah, okay, you got my full attention thinking that I'm so magnanimous, you know, just like giving my attention here, but that was not doing anybody any good. So the practice I had was if I was on the task, I would take a little bit of my attention to, I would hold up one finger and, and, and I would nod that they had my attention, but I would stay focused on whatever I was doing just to try to complete that circle to close that packet and really deflecting the interruption so that there was not going to be a task switch. Mm-hmm. And, and people get used to it. At first, you know, somebody might be like, hey, man, what, what, you're not paying attention to me. What's going on here? And if people really need a critical action, then you have to communicate like, okay, just burst in. And I think it's, it's important to clarify, we only task switch in the emergency department. I think people colloquially say, you know, we're, we're great multitaskers. But when you actually go to like the psychological definition of multitasking, that's where you're doing two discrete tasks completely at the same time. And really the only thing we do that frequently is walking and talking. When you're putting in orders and getting the EKG in front of you at the same time, you're not actually multitasking. You're not splitting your mind between the two. What you're doing is very quickly switching your full attention from one task to the other. Um, And I think that's why it's critical that if you're doing a critical action, like putting in a medication order or even doing a procedure and you get an interruption, if it's not critical for you to stop and address the secondary task, go ahead and finish that primary task so that you can give both of them your full attention. Talking about interruptions brings to mind interrupting yourself in the type of work that you're doing or, you know, the physical placement of where you're doing your work. You know, you sit down, you stand up, you sit down, you stand up, you walk here, you walk there. And to that point, we talked about batching 
a little while ago. And it's such a critical skill to managing multiple tasks. I want to get a little bit deeper into it. I think of batching as putting together tasks at your computer and putting together tasks that are away from the patient. When you're at the computer, you want to take care of as many tasks as you can, whether that's charting, putting in orders, sending out pages to your consultants. You can take care of a lot of that while you're sitting down. And then when you get up from your computer, you want to put together as many, I think, kind of patient care tasks or, you know, tasks away from your computer as you can. So that might be assessing one or two new patients. It might be uh, going to a patient you're discharging and giving them the, you know, final instructions. It may be going and performing that lack repair finally. Um, the idea is to limit those transitions between the two. It's not very efficient if you go and see one patient, then go right back to your computer and put in a couple orders and then go and leave your computer and go see that patient you're discharging. That's just extra, you know, seconds and energy expended walking back and forth that over a 10 or 12 hour shift adds up to several minutes of time that could be spent doing other things. Do you have computers in the room that you can use to enter orders? I do. Doing that, I found had so many positives that I would, I would talk, I, you know, I wouldn't be on the computer while I was talking to the patient necessarily. Cause I always mm -hmm. just like to take notes on paper, just the way that it worked. I would put in the orders and say, all right, here's all the things I put in on you. Here's what we're addressing. Is there anything that we're missing? You know, right. So you get that right there, right? The, uh, mm -hmm. oh, by the way, as the patient's being discharged, it gives, it gives you a moment for that. Mm -hmm. And then it gives them the idea of what's going to happen in their ED course, right? So that they're informed and then that task is off the plate of going back. Because that time when you walk from the room or say, I found that if I would see two or three patients in a row and then go back to my computer, mm -hmm. you know, maybe I would have some notes written down, but I would really forget the flavor of exactly what I wanted to do. And then if I could perform it all in the room, I found that to be number one, more efficient, number two, more engaging with the patient. And number three, I could close the loop and have more attention for other stuff. You know, what's interesting is whether or not people know they do this. Uh, there was an interesting study published in Annals back in 1998, which found attendings walk significantly less more than residents do. Now, you could say that's because they're not doing as much work, but I like to think of it as they've just found a way to be more efficient and see multiple patients at once and spend time at the desk completing those tasks. I'm going to take a break for just a moment here and dig a little bit deeper into this sequencing or timing of documentation. I can't say that my way is the best way and is certainly not the only way to go about it. But as I was trying to figure this out on my own, and as I've also worked through it with trial and error with many different clients experimenting and see what will work for them in their particular emergency department or situation or clinic, because you may be pulled out of a room, a critical patient is coming in or whatever, but making a habit or having a process where you can do this can pay massive dividends. If you can dictate in the room, oh, win. Some places have the ability where you can use Dragon through your phone and that can go directly into your chart. It can be awkward dictating in front of a patient to say the least, but if you preface it with something like, hey, if it's all right with you, I'd like to start your chart right now. And I'm going to summarize what I just heard from you. Let me know if there's anything left out or I've gotten something wrong. And then you're really partnering with them. They see that you are listening and you're getting your H&P on the chart before you leave the room. Now, not every place has this capability. You can use a workstation on wheels. Those can be pretty cumbersome in the room, but 
often they can fit. Make sure you plug it in because those batteries go down fast or even use it right outside the room. That can be effective. And why I stress this, why I stress trying to get that done right there in that physical space, either in the room or right outside the room, is because when you go onto your next task or your next patient, you're onto your next task. When you go back to the desk, you're fair game and you can be easily interrupted or given other tasks by someone else. And oh, big one, big one, big one here. If there is anything that you are free texting, either typing or speaking into voice rec, if you are free texting it more than twice a month, like you're saying the same thing, make it a template. Make it a template you can adjust that is mutable for each patient, but non-duplication of work, massive time saver. Let's now get back to our conversation and talk about using paper. Big fan of the paper, because as my friend Bob Zempel says, paper remembers, people forget. Since the beginning of my career, I walked around with a clipboard and probably 50 sheets of paper and make checklists all mm -hmm. the time. And before leaving a patient's room, make a checklist of critical actions that need to happen. Or if I was running the board mm -hmm. say, all right, what are the things that need to do? I need to call this person. I need to do this. And like, you know, every step that's going to go through the patient's dispo. Now, sometimes I would throw away that piece of paper, <laughs> you know, like I would take a note on it and think it was trash and that would kind of screw me. But I found that continually making checklists had a net positive effect and, and doing it on paper it helped me stay organized and also prioritize what I was doing. Yeah. So I, I call this having an external hard drive and I think everyone does it slightly differently. You use sheets of paper. I personally, at my workstation, I have like a little moleskin booklet that I track all my patients and write down if I've finished their note and if, if I've gotten a disposition. And then I'll also write check boxes for various tasks that I need to remember to do. Um, but I think there are different strategies you can take and you got to find the one that works for you and the one that works for your department. If you have scribes, I think they can be a great external hard drive. If you're in a room or you know walking towards a room and a nurse tells you, hey, can you put in order for such and such and such, instead of you having to remember to do that, just tell your scribe or write it on your sheet of paper, put in order for a heparin flush. And then that way the scribe or the piece of paper can remind you when you get back to a computer app to actually put that in. I like to use the tracking board. We have like a comment section. That's where I'll put critical tasks that need to be done. Or if the nurse communicated something to me that needs to be done and I don't want to remember it, I'll tell them, hey, can you put it in the comments? Oh, great idea. You yeah. know, I say, hey, put order for heparin flush in the comments. And the next time I, I run the board, I'll see that. I'm like, oh, I can knock that out real quickly. Let's talk about running the board. I would imagine that there's efficient and inefficient ways to do that. Um, it's, you know, kind of pulling out what, what are the things that need to happen for each person? Where are they in their mm -hmm. course? But what have you found as your preferred way to run the board? And are there any things that we think might be good things that we do when we run the board, but actually aren't? When you're running the board, that's when you're actually putting that hierarchy, you're putting that framework into use and trying to figure out what is the most efficient thing to do to find dispositions for your patients. In terms of anything that's inefficient, uh, I think about the only thing that is inefficient is not actually running the board. Surprisingly, people don't do that. And there was an interesting study published in Academic Emergency Medicine back in 2018, where they looked at providers and they found different things that they did that were 
uh, led to more efficiency and things that led to less efficiency. Physicians that ran the board more often were overall more efficient and saw more patients per hour. How often do you run the board? Every time you get back to your computer or about every 20 minutes. So if you think if you're trying to batch your tasks together, if you're trying to see two patients or see a patient and perform a procedure, and then you go back to your computer and perform an extended amount of computer tasks, look at the board. And generally, I also look at the board before I leave the computer again, just to kind of run it and make sure, okay, these are the tasks that I need to do away from the computer that I can try and knock out in sequence. And that's going to wrap it up for today. Lots in the show notes for this episode. And we talked about a lot of different strategies and tactics. So take a look at the website for the details. If you want to go back and use them as a reference when you get to work or you want to prepare for going into work. And there's so much to efficiency and workflow that I think I'm going to do several smaller follow-ups to this. So keep an eye out for an episode called kicking the can down the road. I think that's what we'll call it. And if you're curious about or interested in one-on-one coaching, you can learn more about that on our website, roborman.com. And you can sign up there also for a free coaching discovery session. It is free and it is low key to see if coaching could help get you where you want to be. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.